Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, coming up on this edition, first it's Chip Ingram of the Living on the Edge radio program and Venture Christian Church in California discussing basics of the Christian faith and upholding biblical truth. Then it's John Stemberger from Trail Life USA and the Florida Family Policy Council with comments in response to the announcement of the Boy Scouts of America that it will be admitting female members. Plus, it's author Stephen Mansfield providing some analysis of the interesting relationship between President Trump and evangelical Christians. And on this edition of The Intersection, it's Ron Hall, an art dealer who became connected with a homeless man. Together, they wrote a well-received book about their experiences, which has now been made into a motion picture. The Reformation series continues with Douglas Kelly of Reformed Theological Seminary, highlighting principles of the Protestant Reformation and its significance. Finally, it's Paul Chapel from California's Lancaster Baptist Church and West Coast Baptist College, discussing the importance of regarding marriage as a journey rather than a destination. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Chip Ingram is senior pastor of Venture Christian Church in Los Gatos, California, and the speaker on the radio program Living on the Edge. He's written a book entitled Why I Believe, Straight Answers to Honest Questions About God, the Bible, and Christianity, in which he addresses some of the basic truths of the scriptures. Here now is Chip Ingram. Yeah, I think I've probably been working on it most of my life. I rejected, uh, I had a really negative church experience growing up, and um, you know, just thought, I mean, all the things that you hear about that you would not want a church to be very hypocritical and no reality, and so I just kind of opted out. And then um, I remember at a moment praying, God, if you exist, reveal yourself in a way that I can understand, and I won't go through all that, but uh, God did, and then I'd been a Christian about four years, and I mean, starting to read the scriptures regularly in a Bible study, really growing, and God had really changed my life. My father was amazed and said, what happened to you? And he came to faith, and um, and it was the uh, like a day or two after all my classes were done, but I hadn't walked across the stage in college, and the uh, head of the department and I were good friends, a white-haired, brilliant kind of professor, Dr. P, we called him. And um, I'm sure he waited until all the classes were over, and he uh, was talking to me outside the, the offices, and he said, Chip, I just have to ask you a question that puzzles me. I said, well, what's that? He said, you know, you've been a really good student. It's been a lot of fun. You're a real learner. And he said, I just, I just can't quite understand how someone who appears to be as intellectually astute as you are could actually believe in a literal Jesus, believe the Bible, and all this born-again stuff. And, oh, my goodness. You know, kind of shaking mm. his head, and then asked me two or three questions that I didn't have the answers to. And again, he was not down on me. He liked me. I really liked him. But he started something, and I thought to myself, you know, I don't know the answers. I've taken other people's words for this, and I made three decisions. I mean, literally, on the spot. Number one, um, I'm not going to throw my brains in the trash to be a Christian. I really admired this guy, and I'm going to follow the truth. Second is I'm not going to let PhDs or academia or super smart people to intimidate me from not believing if it's true. And number three, I'm going to go on a mission and find out what really is true firsthand. And that started a number of years ago, and this book actually is uh, the culmination of that journey over many, many iterations. 
And then what I realized is I could find lots of really thick, big books that are very technical, written by brilliant, brilliant people, uh, of which I am not. And what I thought was what some of us need is something that's short, clear, packaged in a way with all the resources to dig deeper, but just to help us understand, you know what? This is, a, this is my story, really. This is why I believe mm. in the Bible. It's why I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And I kind of share the journey and the doubts along with the, the process. So I, I think it's a little bit different. I think this might be an apologetic book for Christians. To <laughs> What do you really believe and why? Yeah. And, um, and be able to sit across the table. My, my goal is that, uh, that they could sit across the table from a friend or their mom or their dad or a, someone they haven't seen in five years, and they heard you're a follower of Jesus now. Like, are you kidding? And to be able to calmly, lovingly have confidence and go, what? Well, you know what? Let me let me share with you why. And I, I had that same reaction five years ago. But uh, this is what God did in my life. And then uh, here's the research I've done about the validity and the rational reasons that really do hold water. So that's kind of my dream. We know that about 68 to 70 percent of our young people, five years out of co- out of high school are abandoning the faith. And and part of that is I, I don't really think a lot of them know either what they believe or they know the what, but they don't know why. And so they have an intellectual belief, but then when it's challenged, they really don't have good answers. And I think often, you know, the, the answers are here's a, here's a 15-part CD series you should listen to or MP3s or here's a 600-page book. And uh, I, I think people are in desperate need of uh, what do I believe? Uh, what's it based on? And, and certainly the Bible, for sure. But I mean, what about archaeology? What about science? What about, uh, is, is there any anything from other areas and disciplines that uh, can help us understand, so is there life after death? And some of these most basic questions. Chip Ingram here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website livingontheedge.org. Next up, it's John Stemberger, chairman of the board for Trail Life USA and president of the Florida Family Policy Council. He discussed the Boy Scouts of America's recent decision to allow female members and highlighted Trail Life USA for Boys and American Heritage Girls, which are scouting alternatives oriented toward Christian families. From a recent conversation, this is John Stemberger. Here's the reason why this is wrong. When you begin... And I led the campaign to uh, try to define marriage as the, as the union of a man and a woman, and have led the campaign to try to to try to stop changing that. When you begin to allow same-sex marriage and you recognize homosexuality, it is the beginning of the end of gender in society, because what it says is that when you know moms are just as good as two moms, just as good as a mom and dad. There's no difference between men and women. So two parents, it doesn't matter what kind of two they are, as long as there's just two of them. That assumption is the same assumption that the Boy Scouts are now buying into. No difference between girls and boys. They're interchangeable. As if they're, you know, like Mr. Potato Head, the parts are just these plastic interchangeable. There's no inherent difference between boys and girls. And that is emphatically false. We know from sociological studies, you know, from common sense, that's, that's not correct. Boys need a fraternal uh, place where boys can learn how to become men, where there's just boys, where there's not the distraction of girls. Where there's not that difference, yes, there's opportunities for them to interact with society, but scouting is not that opportunity. And that, that fraternal scouting of camping and uniforms and that scouting that we knew, that scouting is dying. And they are now promoting, you know, uh, 
Scouting for Life in public schools. Um, they are promoting uh, youth programs, and they're promoting, you know, uh, after-school programs and STEM and uh, sports and that kind of thing, because they know that the scouting that we know is, is dying as a, as a fraternal institution to train boys to be men. And that's the sad part about this, is that it's going to become just like in Canada. In Canada, scouting is a youth group with neckerchiefs. It's gays, it's boys, it's girls, it's anybody that wants to come. The only barrier that they have now left is atheists. It's the only group that they supposedly discriminate against, as the left would say. And so eventually I predict that they will fold in that too. I know that Scouting for Life atheists can participate in. It's one of their programs, but supposedly that, that quote-unquote standard still remains in the Boy Scouts of America. Uh, is, is, and I don't know how they can continue to call it the Boy Scouts of America because now it's completely open to girls. And the fact that a girl can achieve the Eagle Scout Award, it's just a sad thing. Uh, they have Girl Scouts for a reason, and, and we also have Trail Life USA for boys and American Heritage Girls for girls for a reason. That is boys and girls are different, and they need to be taught by older women and older men to learn how to be girls, learn how to be boys. Talk about what you see for Christian parents who are concerned about these trends in the Boy Scouts of America as well as Girl Scouts. What do Trail Life USA and American Heritage Girls offer to their their kids and teenagers. So even though we're very saddened by the moral collapse and confusion of the Boy Scouts of America, we're very excited about what God has done with raising up Trail Life USA. There are now over 750 troops in 48 states, and you can go online to traillifeusa.org, and you can find the map and see if there's closer. We have many, many troops in Alabama. Um, we're very excited about that. Um, I know in Birmingham, where I went to law school, there's many troops there, and it's just an exciting program. And so it doesn't happen in all of our locations, but the American Heritage Girls, which has been around for quite a number of years, also has troops all over the country. And so our goal and our vision, our dream would be for parents to be able to go on one night, as we do. We go to Orangewood Prez, and I go with the boys into Trail Life USA. My wife goes with our two girls in the American Heritage Girls, and on one night, you have a family-oriented, church-based scouting program for both boys and girls separately. Um, and so that's very different than having Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts all on separate nights, and you're running all over the place mm. and all that. <laughs> so it's very convenient um, for the family. It's a Christ-centered, um, church-based scouting program. We, we emphasize on outdoor adventure, leadership, and character building. Um, we're growing very rapidly, and uh, this is just a great opportunity. There's nothing like having a boy in the outdoors and a campfire um, to see the stars, to see the beauty and the majesty of the wonder of the, of the universe that God's created. There's things that happen that are just simply magic, and I use that in the most sanctified way. When you put a boy in the outdoors for, for a period of time like that, it causes them to think about his life, think about the grandeur of creation. There's just a powerful thing that has, and, and so we're committed to the outdoors. We're committed to camping and hiking and fishing and canoeing and rafting and rappelling and all those amazing things that boys get to do in trail life. John Stemberger here on The Intersection. The Trail Life USA website is traillifeusa.org. The American Heritage Girls site is americanheritagegirls.org. The Florida Family Policy Council website is flfamily.org. Next up on The Intersection podcast, it's author Stephen Mansfield. He's written a book entitled Choosing Donald Trump. 
God, Anger, Hope, and Why Christian Conservatives Supported Him. In a recent conversation, he related insight into the 2016 presidential election and why Donald Trump's candidacy appealed to many in the Christian community. From that conversation, this is Stephen Mansfield. In order to understand what happened in the election, you have to understand how traumatized the average religious conservative in America felt by the Obama administration. Uh, many people reported feeling that their faith was under attack. They, they spoke of Obama's war on religion. Uh, they felt like their faith was being bombarded. I mean, there were lawsuits against small religious orders of nuns. There was a strident LGBT agenda. Obama seemed to, as somebody once said, uh, never met an abortion he didn't like. Um, and uh, we, all of us know that the Green family, the owners of Hobby Lobby, uh, were prosecuted for not wanting to offer aborted facings as part of their employee health uh, care coverage. Uh, and they ended up having to appeal before the Supreme Court. All of that circulated widely. And so when people uh, began to reflect on how they felt coming out of the Obama administration and then contemplated a Hillary Clinton presidency, they simply saw eight more years of the same. I mean, Hillary Clinton once had defended DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, with scripture notations when her husband signed it into law, but literally danced at parties celebrating Ober Obergefell v. Hodges, um, the, the Supreme Court ruling legalizing same-sex marriage. She would say things like, in order for abortion rights to be fully accepted in America, long-standing religious values will have to be removed. I mean, this terrified the average religious conservative. So I think you had a perfect storm. I think you had a Donald Trump who tapped into the anger and the fear of uh, religious conservatives in particular, but many people on the right. I think you had a, a traumatizing effect from the Obama administration. I think people were terrified of a Hillary Clinton uh, presidency, and, and also her, her campaign handled faith very clumsily. And all of that led to Donald Trump ascending in a way I don't know that he would have at another time in another election. Probably the only segment that uh, that uh, deeply believes that Donald Trump is doing the right thing for their concerns uh, are the religious conservatives. Um, he, he, did, he did put a very strong candidate uh, on the Supreme Court. He's continued to talk pro-life. He's continued to talk religious liberty. He's continued even to talk about the Johnson Amendment and the war on Christmas and things of that nature. Um, and so, you know, the, the values voter, the religious right voter, however you want to phrase it, the conser religious conservative voter in America, uh, for the most part are, are pretty happy with him because that's an arena in which he has at least continued to sound a consistent tone. Now, there haven't been a lot of major moves, major your permanent policy moves and, and successes, but, but, but the things that most religious conservatives care about involve Supreme Court rulings, and he has made a major positive move in that particular regard. So uh, other th there's a slight loss of support amongst evangelicals, largely because of issues like the, you know, him calling NFL players SOBs and you know, picking a fight with the mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, while she was standing elbow deep in the waters of Hurricane Irma. Uh, that has lost him a little bit, but for the most part, religious conservatives who voted for him are still very pleased with him for the reasons that we're saying. I think we've always known what Trump, who Trump was, and I think to vote for him because of uh, because he champions some causes that we care about does not mean that we're responsible for everything that he does. Uh, everybody in the country winces at the pettiness, winces at the, the tweets, winces at the smallness that can sometimes come from this man. Uh, but the fact is, just because you, you voted for him and you did so for noble reasons, you did it because you're pro-life, you did it because you want to see jobs come back to America, you did it because you want to stop seeing an internationalist agenda, you did it because you want immigration controlled, good, noble reasons. 
um, does not mean that you are, first of all, endorsing everything about this man or that you're responsible for his presidency in toto. So I, I think people of good conscience are on both sides of this issue, and within the body of Christ, within the church, uh, we need to be we need to gentle up with each other. You know, I go to a church that's largely African American, and there are a lot of Democrats in that church, not not because they want to abandon the gospel, but because they have certain social concerns. Um, they might be pro-life, might be a pro-life Democrat, but they have certain social concerns. And I just need, to, even though I'm a conservative to the right, definitely to the right of center, and have voted Republican my whole life, um, I need to gentle up with them. I need to understand that they too have noble concerns, that they haven't just abandoned the faith and that they're not just attacking the government or want to bring the country down in some strange way. So it's, it's a good time for people of faith to, to gentle up a bit, understand each other's case, and to not blame each other for everything that comes out of this White House. This is going to be a very tumultuous presidency, and if we, if we let it, it can really do damage within the body of Christ. Um, I think it's time to gentle up, understand each other, and maintain unity at all costs. Stephen Mansfield here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website, stephenmansfield.tv. Stephen is spelled S-T-E-P-H-E-N. Well, this is the Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through the website, meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on the Intersection Podcast. Also, through that homepage, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast-receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Front Room, a devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. The other is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Well, Ron Hall is co-author, along with the late Denver Moore, of the book Same Kind of Different as Me, providing the basis for the film of the same name. In our conversation, Ron shared about the unlikely friendship between himself and Denver, a homeless man, and the message that grew out of it. Here now is Ron Hall. I had been an art dealer my whole life about art and canvases, and uh, now all of a sudden, you know, I was I, I was the canvas. God just, <clears throat> he he brought the most unlikely man into my life and, and he used his wisdom. I mean, this man in, in my wife's dream, he was poor, but wise. And, and I didn't really understand what real wisdom was like. And, uh, so he began to use this, uh, this wise man and to, to change my life. It was, uh, he, um, you know, one of the first days, uh, I mean, I, I pursued him for five months before I got him in the car and then uh, he he asked me. He said, "I said I want to be your friend." And he said, uh, "You want to be my friend?" And and, uh, and I said, uh, "Yeah." And he said, "Well, I'm gonna have to think about that." Well, uh, you know, he didn't really want a friend, but but God intended for us to be friends. And so you have to read the book, same kind of different as me. It's it's a very very complicated but extraordinarily inspiring story to find out how we actually became friends and how God used us because. Uh, you know, after we became friends, uh, you know, he became the person that ministered to us. God took the, the craziest, most dangerous homeless man in the inner city to be the one that ministered to us through the darkest, uh, most troubling days of our lives. And, and he used this uh, homeless African-American man to save our family, to save our uh, relation, to save my relationship with my father. 
and to and then to rebuild lives for millions of homeless around America because uh, he and I then began traveling together. He moved in with me, and we began traveling the world together, the, the United States. And we raised $100 million for the homeless, and this is how God transformed two lives. I mean, it's not – I was not a white – this is not a white savior movie. This is a movie about how an African-American man saved a white family. So this is what's so extraordinary about the story. Well, the book obviously has touched so many lives what do you I, I, this is a very compelling story when you look at the messages that readers have taken away from this book throughout the years what would you say would be maybe one or two of the major points major themes that that people have taken away from it i would say that it's a film about making a difference that one one woman uh, one woman's simple dream of a homeless man and being faithful to follow through on what she believes she heard from god has now become a nationwide movement. I mean, there are 175 cities joining hands on a called Making a Difference Across America, and uh, and this is just uh, that you know one one just one person's dream is now a nationwide movement. I just want to encourage people that if they believe that they're hearing from God, to follow through on that. You know, this is a film about just making a difference. It's a it's a film about how a random act of kindness. Uh, just developed into something much more and much greater. So I encourage people to begin random acts of kindness. This is what our our movie is about. You know, uh, you know, so many people see the homeless as a problem, but my friend Denver, the homeless man himself, saw uh, homelessness as an opportunity for Christians to show the love of Christ and to make a difference in their communities and their cities. So wow. What a powerful message for our times. It just occurred to me, Ron, this, how long ago, by the way, was it that you and Denver wrote the book? It came out in 2006. Okay. And, uh, and so now we re-released it here in 2017 with additional chapters to catch people up to date on what happened between 2006 and 2017, when we now have uh, a major motion picture with four Academy Award uh, actors. <laughs> and it is the first faith uh friendly faith uh, film of, of hope and redemption that has so many Academy Award winners. This is a, a great film of, of hope. We mix black and white. We mix poverty and wealth, and we throw them all together in a two-hour inspiring movie, and we pour out a message of hope that hopefully can heal our nation. You know, this mm. is, uh, this is a, a, a movie that illustrates so beautifully that it's not the color of our skin that divides our nation. It's the condition of our hearts. Well, and Ron, just an observation here. I know that now how long has the the film actually been in the making from the initial discussions that took place to, of course, to now when it's in theaters nationwide? It's been a pretty long Ten process, hasn't it? Years. Ten years, Bob. It was wow. a long time, but it was all in perfect in God's timing because this film is a film for today. Yep. Our nation needs this story. This is a film that can possibly bring about healing to our nation. Ron Hall here on The Intersection. Learn more about the film at samekindofdifferentasmemovie.com. Well, next up on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's Douglas Kelly, Professor of Theology Emeritus at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. He discussed various elements of the Protestant Reformation and its significance, including its impact on the world today. From that recent conversation, this is Douglas Kelly. There was a great professor of church history, Philip Schaff, 
German, and he wrote a massive study on church history through the ages, uh, multi-volumed. And Philip Schaff said that he thought the second greatest event in church history after, obviously, Pentecost, you know, Christ coming, dying, rising, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, he thought it might be considered the great 16th century Reformation, which was another, many of us believe, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a mighty revival at a time when Europe was in serious difficulty, and it really, as one scholar said, renewed the face of Northern and Western Europe. So I think it was a tremendous event um, out of which in many ways has come some of the best elements of what we would call the modern world. What would you say would be the the main principles that people can reflect on today and apply in the modern church that were were really or received their their birth in a sense uh, during that time period? Well, obviously the the reformers believed that they had recovered the the elemental gospel of the early church of you know. Old Testament, New Testament, the basic gospel of salvation, that we are saved through faith in Christ. And, you know, when we're believing in Christ, the Holy Spirit renews us on the inside so that we really come into union with Christ as his people. And then our life begins being transformed and we have eternal, eternal hope. And we are used to uh, reach out to others. So I think the basic point was how we are saved. Now, there were real difficulties in the parts of the Middle Ages. I don't think the Catholic Church ever totally lost the faith. I would not hold that they did. There were elements of the gospel, but I think there came, particularly the last maybe two, two, two and a half centuries before the Reformation, um, there came a crisis of faith in much of the church, much of the official Western Catholic Church uh, movement known as nominalism. And it would take me 20 minutes to explain. It was basically a disconnection between God and what is the system of truth that's taught in the church. So there was a real crisis whether you could know God directly. And then you had, going along with that, um, a moral decline in much of the church. The greatest institution in, 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 in Western Europe, obviously, was the church. But there was a moral decline. There came a decline theologically, nominalism. You weren't sure you could really be in touch with God. And then um, all kinds of ways to fill into that in the some in the church tried to say, well, you, yes, you take Christ and never denied that, but you have to add a sacramental system in certain ways, good works in certain ways, and hope that maybe when you die, enough will have been done to get you through. It's hard to know. And then there came moral decline in much of the clergy, not all of it. There are always good men in the priesthood church, but... Um, not being sure you could know God, not being assured of salvation and how you can um, 
be in touch with the Lord, there came a loosening of moral standards in much of southern, western, and northern Europe. In fact, Machiavelli, the famous scholar in Italy, kind of a skeptic, once said that those were who were living closest to the Vatican were perhaps the most skeptical of seeing the lives of some of the leadership. Um, and so the church, say, for instance, in Scotland, owned one-third of the land, one-third of the wealth, and yet uh, many of the many of the leadership were acting in ways opposed to the simple teaching of Scripture, and the people weren't being taught the way of salvation and godly living. So there was a, a crying out for something better. Douglas Kelly here on The Intersection. The seminary's website is rts.edu. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Paul Chapel, Senior Pastor of Lancaster Baptist Church in California and the President of West Coast Baptist College. He's co-author, along with wife Terry, of the book, Are We There Yet? Marriage, A Perfect Journey for Imperfect Couples. In our recent conversation, he shared material and principles relative to that book. Here now is Paul Chapel. I believe there were two things happening in our hearts when we started the book. First, our four children have all married over the last five or six years, and uh, they're all serving the Lord in ministry. And, and we began to think about some of the lessons we had learned on our journey and things we wanted to pass down to them. And then uh, when you, you pastor a congregation with several thousand members, you're working with family issues all the time. And so we just began putting into print some of the principles that we've shared in teaching, preaching, and seminars. And, and then uh, we began to add a travel theme. It seemed like every time we thought of an issue with marriage, we thought of a funny story from somewhere we had visited or something that had happened. And so uh, we developed the book into this journey. And really the dream destination of marriage is not found in a place or a possession. It's found in a person. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the book really centers on the fact that when we are one with the Lord, then we will be one with our spouse. And it was a it was a great project that we enjoyed, and we believe it's going to help thousands of couples who are working uh, toward this oneness in their own relationship. We've had uh, various uh, pastors and Christian counselors already uh, ordering the book at Amazon.com or uh, or at com, and they're using the book for premarital counseling because we really deal with many of the basic issues. We deal with uh, it's a two-lane highway, which is a chapter on communication. Uh, we have a chapter entitled Roadblocks, which deals with uh, conflict and how to deal with conflict. One of my favorite chapters is Traveling Light, a chapter on forgiveness. And uh, we tell the story of having to unload an entire suitcase in front of a couple of hundred people because we were overweight in the suitcase and had to redistribute. And, and sometimes in marriage, we have to unload and uh, we, have to, we have to forgive and not carry around the bitterness. And so uh, these aspects of marriage are, are things that are, are dealt with head-on in Scripture. And uh, so we have found that uh, the pastors and counselors who previewed the book are very happy to use it for the uh, premarital and then, of course, the young marrieds. Well, you mentioned one of those chapter titles. It's a two-lane highway dealing with communication. What do you see as some of the elements of good communication within the marriage relationship? 
Well, we deal with some very, very practical things from Ephesians chapter 4, and of course one of those is just being truthful. Uh, the Bible commands us to speak the truth in love, and uh, we, we talk about the fact that uh, we've, we've got to begin with a safe place to, to share and to speak uh, from our hearts. And uh, then from that point, uh, we really talk about the importance of uh, guarding our heart from bitterness. The Bible says, neither give place to the devil. Uh, when we let uh, the sun go down on our wrath or when we carry anger, uh, that's going to be a real problem with communicating as well. And then we get into the passage that deals with let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. And we talk about the fact that Christian couples should never threaten with divorce. Uh, just practical things. Don't argue in front of the kids. Don't attack someone personally for their looks or something they cannot change. And then finally the chapter concludes with just learning how to be a minister of grace. And uh, the Bible tells every one of us that we're to speak that which is good to the use of edifying. And a lot of us, especially as husbands, we, we work in places where we're you know, seeing uh, things that aren't right and we're kind of in the quality control business, so to speak, and we find fault with this or that and try to get it fixed. And if you bring that attitude home, it's surely going to hinder your communication. And so it's really a matter of, of learning how to communicate with Christian grace. Paul Chapel here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website, arewetheryetbook.com. Well, you've been listening to The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through the website, meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also get subscribed to The Intersection Podcast. Two blogs are accessible. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.